All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI podcast. I am your host, Sam Charrington, and today I'm joined by Semi Kriyeju. Semi is an assistant professor at Stanford University. Before we get into today's conversation, be sure to take a moment right now to open up your Apple Podcasts or Spotify app. And if you're not already subscribed to the show, hit that follow button to make sure you won't miss any of the great content we've got planned for you. Sammy, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a bit. Uh, yeah, I think last time we spoke, I was at University of Illinois, so in the middle of the Midwest. I'd be much colder now, I think, than I am. Uh, and since then, I moved to the West Coast. Nice, nice. And you're enjoying it based on that smile on your face? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm also just a smiley person. But so far, so good. Um, I think, you know, excellent environment, great colleagues, great students, great weather. Can't complain. You had a great year at this past NURPS with uh, two of the papers that you uh, worked on winning uh, awards. One was an outstanding main track paper award for the uh, our emergent abilities of large language models, a mirage, as well as the award you won in the benchmark category, decoding trust, a comprehensive assessment of trustworthiness in GPT models. Before we dig into the specifics of those papers, maybe catch us up on kind of how you're thinking about your research agenda broadly and kind of what led you to focus on uh you know, what, what, what are the threads that tie together these uh, couple of projects? So my lab broadly is interested in trustworthy AI systems. Uh, we think both about foundations. So what does it mean? Think about measurement and assessment. Uh, what are the gaps in current systems? And then we think about mitigation. What can we do? And what are the tools that we can bring to bear to help close trustworthiness gaps in building in AI systems uh, once deployed? Given that uh, the couple of papers that we'll be focusing on are focused on language models and uh, GPT and the like, that clearly has become a, a focus for you as well. Indeed, it's it's quite fascinating. So uh, at least on the AI applied side, I think we most... Uh, most of our effort was much more closely tied to vision uh, a couple of years ago. And I think uh, maybe as a consequence, both of uh, the colleagues that I had around, things that people found most interesting, uh, the problems that, you know, at least the applied problems that were, were animating a lot of the work. I think you're correct that uh, none of us escaped what happened a couple of years ago that I think changed the attention of a lot of the world, but definitely the AI world too, is thinking much more about language. Uh, and my students definitely got bit by the bug. And I think of uh, maybe initially a bit kicking and screaming, but I think uh, uh, pulled me into thinking about language much more. Uh, I, I've, I've found it fascinating. I think weirdly I avoided language as a grad student. I remember actually distinctly uh, going to some of these shared uh, cross lab meetings that had folks from uh, core ML like I was, but folks from language and uh, other areas and not being able to make heads or tails of the, um, of the language part of the work. I think at least in discussions at the time, they were fairly heavy with lingo within the area uh, and just seemed so far from like stuff I was comfortable with. And I just never bothered to really get into it. Uh, and I think uh, for better or worse, everyone's paying attention now and, Hopefully we're not doing it too badly. I think folks that you know, uh, 
are either linguists or like core NLP people sometimes complain about how the rest of machine learning engages in, in uh, some of their research. But hopefully uh, they would agree that some of our contributions are uh, positively affecting uh, language specifically. But again, we think of our role, both me and again, broadly the lab as uh, foundations. So we hope that many of the of what we pull out are things that apply broadly beyond uh, specific, either specific uh, sort of modalities, but also perhaps beyond specific applications as well. But yeah, sometimes it's a bit of a finding the right balance is, is part of the, the game, if you like, of uh, sometimes going deep in a particular areas, sometimes trying to pull out themes that seem broad and apply to many things. And uh, I think so far, so good and trying to find some balance between that. So, and I have folks in my students in my lab that are very deep in nitty gritty in uh, specific areas in healthcare and language, as, as we've been discussing. I have others that like to be much more abstract. I think the synergy actually works quite well. So uh, pretty happy so far with the combination. One of the papers that I mentioned, the, specifically the our emergent abilities of LLMs and Mirage, uh, challenges a, a core idea that we've kind of come to hold about LLMs, or many have come to hold about LLMs, this idea of emergent properties or emergent abilities. And, uh, you know, you, you really cast doubt on, on that idea with this paper. Talk a little bit about what set you and your co-authors down the path to explore uh, this particular line of work? Yeah, that's been a fascinating, almost roller coaster paper uh, for the group. So full credit to <laughs> the student leads, uh, Rylan Schaefer, who's uh, sort of uh, the initial lead of the paper, and then uh, Brando Miranda, who helped uh, a ton with sort of fleshing things out and, and making the paper what it is. So um, a lot of the beginning of this started with an observation Ryland made when uh, I'm reasonably certain he was taking an NLP class, so a natural language processing class, uh, where part of the class included discussing foundation models and related kinds of tools and uh, discussing uh, this phenomenon that uh, some of our colleagues had uh, observed uh, that suggested what they called emergence, uh, this uh, mm -hmm. observation that on some tasks, uh, some of these large language models seem to um, be bad when the scale of the model was small and somewhat unpredictably as you increase scale would get better. And so this was the key observation and this got the name emergence. And I think you know a few different potential tasks where this showed up, but I think the one that one of the ones that people initially gravitated strongly towards were uh, settings where you're asking the model to add numbers together or do various kinds yeah. of simple arithmetic. Um, and various reasons why this was interesting. I think one interesting one reason why there was a lot of interest in this application was that the there's a hypothesis that uh, the ability to do arithmetic. Uh, is tied to some aspects of reasoning. And so uh, mm -hmm. this idea that models could do uh, reasoning is again, you know, quite fundamental to 
the potential of in the future having models both in the positive side uh implement or, or run more uh important aspects uh, or, or just do more important things um and the maybe more concerning side potential adverse outcomes if you know these models yeah. get good in a way that people don't have a handle on and so this is some other discussion in the ether you know in the environment in the broadly within the space uh because again of this observation of, of what's uh what seems to be this observation of this what seems to be an abrupt change i think most importantly unpredictable abrupt change i think that was the sort of at least to us the aspect that people seem most concerned with that you don't know what scale the model seems to get better so that sort of unpredictability seemed most concerning sounds like these two components that you've identified, the sharpness of the change and the unpredictability of the change have become to some degree an accepted definition of emergent abilities. I don't know that there is an uh, accepted definition. It's one of those tricks of language, which I think is often a challenge in any technical field that has to, I think this is true for you know statistics and lots of science where uh, terms go back and forth between a precise technical definition and a sort of colloquial language definition and, and sort of you know, it takes some time for particularly when it's a new thing it takes a bit of time for maybe the field to settle on a specific definition we took one that seemed sort of precise based on one of the papers uh that again was as you said so changes in model behavior with scale model performance with scale um, that uh, is unpredict are unpredictable in terms of when they happen and have this sharp behavior. So what feels seems like a phase change in maybe physics terms kind of behavior in terms of performance from sort of zero to suddenly the model being extremely competent to some kind of task. Yeah. What resonated really strongly for me with that definition is how closely it correlates to some of the graphs that you use to illustrate the idea of uh, so-called emergence, I guess we can say, you know, for example, um, arithmetic ability with uh, respect to scale, like, you know, it's just an exponential graph. There's a knee in the curve somewhere. And the idea is that, you know, that knee is sharp and we don't know where that knee is going to happen for, for new problems. Indeed. Yeah. Um, so maybe just uh, digging a bit into some of the methodology and, and some of what we tried to pull out. So I think, uh, you know, Rylan's initial observation was that this uh, this property, this what was called emergence, seemed to happen uh, for only certain kinds of metrics and not others. And yeah. uh, I think this was what led to, again, all of our thinking along these lines in the work. Because uh, at least initially our thinking was if this was something fundamental, um, the specific way you measure it uh, should have maybe at least a limited influence. Um, I should say I spent a huge chunk of my career talking about metrics and trying to convince my colleagues to spend mm -hmm. more time thinking more carefully about metrics. Um, I would say, you know, none of the other things I've done have had nearly as much impact as what we thought initially was just an interesting site paper. I don't know we th that we thought that it wouldn't be uh, <laughs> folks would find it nearly as interesting as they did. But anyways, you know, this is something that I, I think I've tried to hammer, you know, like highlight all through my work, because uh, there are lots of examples all through machine learning where uh, we sometimes are just too lazy about thinking that metrics are uh, sort of 
special given and not given uh, when I say this, I just want to be careful about word choice here. But most often what happens is whoever <laughs> writes the first paper on a topic picks some measure and then pretty much everyone else uh -huh. just uses the same thing. And I've argued for a long time that this can be worrying because uh, the measure that you pick in this, I, I would argue often arbitrary way, need not correlate to anything that you care about. Uh, meaningfully in the world. And, well, that and was the, be... the focus of our entire last conversation was we've got these, these kind of abstracted academic metrics and how do you then apply them to, you know, use cases or business oriented scenarios. So exactly. So that's a theme yeah. that has been a, a thread through a lot of my work. Um, here, I think what was interesting, and again, Rylan first observed this, was that um, the difference between the metrics that seemed to correlate with emergent behavior and the metrics that didn't seem to be, uh, we haven't found a good name for this. We sometimes call this sharpness or harshness, but it's the idea that the mod, mm -hmm. the metric doesn't give partial credit. So it's a measure mm -hmm. that, uh, sort of you get full credit if you get the answer right and no credit if you get anything wrong. Kind of an all or nothing uh, credit assignment issue. Indeed. Okay. That, that, that seems to be at least one of the key characteristics uh, of uh, metrics that seem to have, again, uh, the results being what might be interpreted as, uh, again, an emergent behavior and some performance. Can you give an example of, I guess, arithmetic would be an example of you either get the problem right or wrong. And... Yes. <laughs> arithmetic is a great example. Yeah. Did I get the answer right? Exactly. Which arguably, and I think very reasonably, uh, many have countered and said, well, I don't care if I get partial credit in mm -hmm. an arithmetic question. Uh, I think this may be reasonable, but again, uh, I think what hopefully our paper is pointing out is... Um, one, uh, I think the specific choice of metric plays a big role uh, and whatever inferences you make should be made in light of the fact that you also had control of your measure uh, and mm -hmm. sort of questions of fundamental fundamentalness uh, of some kind of behavior models, I think should be uh, at least considered carefully. So it should not be sort of trivially stated broadly without context. I think that's... Yeah. What um, I think I hear being, you saying is that you require a certain level of scale to do arithmetic, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's, an, it's a magical emergent property. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be comfortable saying that. Yeah. And I'll, I'll say a bit more because I think probably the most interesting, or one of the more interesting bits for me uh, is, I mean, both the fact that you have this sort of sharp behavior, I think, is an interesting thing. The unpredictability of it is also interesting. And I think uh, there, I'm, I'm, I think we can make, I can make a somewhat stronger argument to counter uh, at least some of the sort of discussion happening. Um, but on the, again, to your point, this, this idea of uh, mm -hmm. arithmetic and sort of yes, no, correct, not correct. Uh, in our evaluation of models, I guess it's one thing for maybe deployment settings, but I'd argue for many things that we care about, uh, partial credit actually plays a big role, both in terms of calibrating our understanding of what's happening, uh, but also in just in terms of understanding, mm -hmm. like any kind of understanding of what the models are doing. Uh, having measures that can capture this uh, 
partial or gradual evolution, I think is quite meaningful. Um, and so maybe that's an, another inference of just, again, the effects of metric choice on interpretation of, of some set of results. Uh, uh, maybe a slightly stronger claim is the whole argument about unpredictability. So I posited a very simple toy model, um, admittedly toy in that it, it ignores a lot of what uh, we think language models are doing and simply considers mm -hmm. uh, language models as next word predictors. Uh, so next token predictors, right? So, you know, we take mm -hmm. that, the, the actual training objective at face value. And more than that, we actually, in addition, we just ignore even correlations. So we just think about this as, I'm gonna do a sort of, uh, you know, I, while I'm predicting a sequence, excuse me, I'm predicting a sequence, I'm gonna ignore the fact that it's a sequence. Just think about this as independent decisions on what the next token should be. So I have a very simple model, uh, if you like a coin toss model, uh, where the coin toss has a parameter that says, how likely am I to get the answer right? If this parameter, this probability is very big, I'm likely to get the answer right for any coin mm -hmm. toss. And I'm gonna do this coin toss in a sequence. And for now, I'm just gonna ignore the fact that uh, in language, uh, sure. the sequence of tokens I predict are not independent. The, the sort of, the whole point of, for instance, uh, recurrent models is right. that the, you know, history affects the current prediction, affects the future. So we'd ignore that and just think about this as sort of coin toss. It turns out this somewhat abstract uh, simplification is sufficient to capture a lot of qualitative properties uh, about what metrics might do. So in particular, uh, you can characterize this very simple model quite precisely. Mm -hmm. So it's a simple model, you can sort of do a bunch of math with it. Uh, and in particular, you can work out what you expect to happen uh, mm -hmm. as I change the probability of success. Mm -hmm. So if I change the probability of getting an answer right, uh, what do I expect to happen if I'm measuring the number of times I get a sequence correct? So this allows us to reframe the addition question as, uh, you know, how likely am I to get yeah. uh, four or five numbers correct in a row? So right. I'm ignoring the fact that I'm actually doing addition. I'm just thinking about this. I'm gonna pick the next token. Will I get the right next token right or wrong, right? Uh, and we have some sense of what uh, we expect models to do because uh, existing work on scaling laws, uh, which are these empirical observations of what cross entropy uh, looks like as I increase models, gives us a handle on roughly what's the average probability that you get the next token right. So that's something like what cross entropy is measuring. In other words, the model size correlates directly to the P in your model. Indeed. Yes. So, okay. so this is somewhat, uh, it's a sort of empirical finding that has held up quite well, uh, enough mm -hmm. that I think, you know, the field is comfortably comfortable saying that uh, there is this association between how big models are and then this P, if you like, how likely you are mm -hmm. uh, to get the next token right, which roughly cross entropy is measuring. And so we take this, we just pull out that number. Uh, yeah. And then we ask if I modulate this number from small to big, what should I expect to see if I'm checking uh, not just one token correct, but K tokens in a row correct? So let's say five tokens in a row correct. Uh, mm -hmm. And so this is actually, it's a kind of question, and I, I don't say this, I wanna be careful here. Um, <laughs> it's a question I would give to like a probability class as homework, uh, but I don't say this in a dismissive way to any of the claims that I've made. I'm mostly, again, this is a simple model, but uh, it's simple, but it's sort of simple enough to illustrate the point, I think, quite clearly. 
but uh, it's a question I've been asked to a probability class. You know, how likely am I to get uh, five answers in a row correct if I, get, I have some sort of known probability of getting one answer in, one answer correct? So roughly, you know, if I'm going to make a mistake, well, if I make a mistake in the first one, then I'm done. I might get the first one correct, or I make a mistake in the second one, then I'm done. You know? So you can work this out by looking at sort of the sequence of predictions and just simply use that, that simple single parameter of how likely you are to get the next token correct based on a mm -hmm. simple fixed probability model. Uh, and if you do this, you see a curve that looks notoriously like the emergence curve. So this overall accuracy measure changes from mm -hmm. close to zero to sort of close to one. Uh, is sort of perfectly predicted by, again, very simple probability math. Um, mm -hmm. And I think more importantly, our results, while on this very simple toy model, match or sort of predict the observed data quite well. Um, so if you look at arithmetic problems, and if you look at the sort of this, the number of uh, tokens I need to get right to get you know, five plus five, say four digit addition, right? So to get four digit addition, right? you generally need to get five tokens correct because sort of four digits mm -hmm. and then often there'll be a sort of uh if the numbers are big enough there'll be something that uh will roll over and i if i just plot with this very simple model assuming uh there's some fixed number that tells me how likely i am to get the first token right second token right third token right fourth token right and so forth i plot out what should i expect to see uh, in terms of overall probability that i get all five tokens correct and if i plot that out that has the same kind of s shape as you see in the emergence curve very close to zero because any mistake uh, when we have low probability of getting things right you get hurt by any of the tokens being wrong uh at some point the probabilities get high enough that you're likely to get all of them right and then it suddenly shoots up and so uh it sort of looks qualitatively pretty much the same and so we use this to argue again that uh the predictability i think uh, or the lack of predictability uh, may also sort of be not a stronger claim because again, with sort of a very simple cartoon model, uh, we argue that we have sort of quite good predictability of, uh, for things like addition. So for, for metrics that are tied to, again, getting everything right, uh, we can use behavior that we expect from predicting sequences, uh, that sort of are very well understood to predict what we expect to happen, um, on, to the overall model. And the, these findings seem quite consistent. So this challenge, uh, the predictability claim, again, arguing that uh, at least for many of the existing uh, properties that people have looked at, so existing things that we've tried to build with models, uh, we argue that you yeah. can predict them quite well. Um, one slightly tongue-in-cheek experiment we do, but I think meaningful, again, not to be, again, highlighting this is not dismissive. <laughs> I think the whole way that this, this happened in the metric? field completely makes sense. Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Sarah. Yes. <laughs> exactly. This. So again, we just really wanted to hammer the point home that metric choice matters so much, and we did this experiment, as you said, the vision metric, uh, where we uh, looked at a problem where no one has ever claimed emergence, and we changed right. the metric. Uh, with a very similar style and sort of show a curve that matches emergence. So we look at uh, autoencoders, which are these models, as uh, many of your listeners might know, that are uh, useful for sort of, uh, if you like, summarizing data. So they're, um, they find, they're models that you use to find low dimensional embeddings of data such that um, 
uh, you can compress large data sets uh, instead of low dimensional space. Um, so they're useful for a bunch of things. They're good for denoising. They're good for compression. Uh, so, you know, a big part of the field is uh, building good autoencoders. Um, and uh, they're also big within models. People use autoencoders inside much larger models that do fancy stuff. Um, and so we looked at autoencoders. They're usually measured by some metric that says how close is my predicted image to uh, the original image. So how well did I reconstruct mm -hmm. a particular image? Um, and this is generally something like a squared loss or something in that family, some kind of norm. Uh, and we replace this with a measure that uh, gives you full credit if you're within a small value close to the perfect reconstruction <laughs> and then zero credit if you're far away. Uh, uh -huh. So instead of, again, seeing this sort of partial, uh, the model getting better slowly, you're seeing yeah. uh, model is far away, no credits, and then at some point it gets better and then full credit. And we show, again, this- Lo and behold, what did you find? Same way. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, one more thing I want to mention. So we did one more experiment where we uh, we argued based on the very simple model I just mentioned, just using very simple uh, sort of independent probability of getting token rights, to getting mm -hmm. tokens right. One of the inferences from that model is not only can I predict when phase transitions might happen, but also I don't expect zero in the part where the models are not performing well. Um, I actually expect to see a little bit of signal because even though, you know, again, the idea is on the x-axis, if you can visualize the curve, uh, on the x-axis I have sort of how likely am I to get the next token correct? So this goes from zero to one. If I'm one, I'm perfectly going to predict the next token. If I'm zero, I'm going to get the next token completely wrong. Uh, and on the y-axis, I'm predicting how likely am I to get five tokens in a row correct? Right. So mm -hmm. the x-axis is controllable. We can go from uh, what happens if it's zero, we never get a token correct. What happens if it's one, we get all the tokens correct. And the y-axis is this model of how likely am I to get k sequences, sorry, k tokens in a row. So some kind of sequence of tokens correct. So this is capturing, again, this uh, geometric is actually a technical term. You get a distribution that captures uh, sort of what you expect to see in terms of probability of error. And one of the inferences from this simple model is that uh, you don't expect to see zero uh, at the low probabilities. You expect to also see sort of uh, improvements. Uh, so, so the curve you should be expecting is not uh, S curve with flat before the emergence point, if you like, and then a sharp and then mm -hmm. a flat after, but really sort of uh, monotonically getting better uh, from zero all the way through where it shifts. Mm -hmm. And then getting better again after it shifts, uh, because e even in this uh, metric that has harshness in it and doesn't give partial credit, uh, the nature of the sampling is such that uh, as you get more likely to get some of the tokens right, you will get a little bit of partial credit in the aggregate anyway. It's just that it's most dramatic at some transition point. Is the idea that in these instances where we're claiming emergence, the actual uh graph looks like this geometric distribution if we take uh, i guess two claims as true one uh, many of the claims of emergence are tied to full credit instead of partial credit two uh the mechanisms underneath this are often tied to sequence of tokens being correct all at once as opposed to a single token uh potentially being correct and you don't get any partial credit so you get the full sequence correct. So those are maybe the two 
bases of the claim. And again, both of those tie quite well to what people are doing. The caveat is that the measurements themselves are different and you're making uh, your claims around the kind of a toy representative measurement model as opposed to the one that's typically being discussed and charted. Yes, yes. But this is this is very strongly on purpose. Uh, I guess I want to highlight that. Uh, and actually, I'm a big fan of this kind of research where you, you find little toy um, sort of illustrative models, if you like, that capture qualitative properties that match real behavior at scale. And that that's actually the point of this. So so I, I correct fully correct that this is uh, not the actual model. This is sort of a cartoon, but it's a sort of hopefully thoughtful cartoon designed on purpose to capture scaled up behavior. Um, and in particular, you know, this cartoon model suggests some uh, inferences that we should make that we then validate in the real models. So again, the first inference was, can we predict when the transition will happen? And again, we show that this matches reality quite well. Uh, the second inference was, you shouldn't expect zero in the parts where the models aren't doing well. You should expect uh, still monotonically increasing performance, but increasing much more slowly. And we show this. So the argument we make, again, this falls down to statistics. We show that statistically, to get the right signal at the low parts of the measurement space, you need to sample many more models. And the reason is, you know, each model, the probability that it gets it correct is low. Uh, to actually get a good estimate of a small value, you need to sample things much more often. Uh, and we argue that part of the reason pe people don't see any signal uh, for small models is that they're not sampling sufficiently. Uh, because again, uh, an inference from this qualitative model is that if you sample sufficiently, you should see signal. It's just that the signal is not dramatic till you get to whatever the inflection point is. And so we show this in the paper. Uh, in particular, we, we build small models where we sample much more, or, or start with small models and sample much more often. And we show that again, the qualitative behavior of these curves are not zero at the beginning, some uh, sort of transition point, and then almost one in a flat way. But as predicted by, again, this very simple model, you get monotonically increasing performance in the beginning, uh, some sharp transition that matches when you expect uh, sort of individual probability of getting things correct to, um, to end up having this, if you like, uh, transition behavior to getting sequences correct much more often. Uh, and so mostly the, the key idea is, uh, and you might see this in the paper if you're looking at it, that the, the theoretically predicted curves uh, match reality quite well. Are you predicting the transition point in terms of P in your simple model, or are you able to work back to some number of parameters in a representative actual LLM and predict the number of parameters in which the transition will occur? The model predicts it in terms of P, but we can go from P to parameters because the scaling laws tells us uh, sort of a rough estimate of how parameter size ties to P, if you like. That's the whole, the point of the scaling law is, uh, and the x-axis model size and the y-axis sort of cross entropy, which is reasonable, you can pull from that a proxy for what this p-value is, how likely you are to get mm -hmm. the next token right. So there's a chain of argument that allows you to go back to parameter size uh, for expected transition. Okay. And is that sufficiently abstracted that it's uh, task or use case independent? That's, this is a great question, actually, because I think it's one that requires a bit more work than we've put in. It's sort of some of what we're thinking about now 
in terms of how this relates to different tasks and what might happen in different settings. Uh, in particular, you know, they're, they're, the arithmetic ones are, I think, were the ones that were most obvious to play with. And uh, some of the other settings that people are interested in uh, are a bit more complicated in how token behavior might interact with the model architecture. So things like in-context noting, for instance, I think is a little bit trickier to pull out uh, sort of exactly how you might uh, explain things in terms of our simple model. Um, that said, um, so what the scaling law do does is, uh, I guess it, it's task agnostic in the sense, at least the original scaling law papers, they're task agnostic in the sense that they just measure how well the model fits data. Uh, and going from that to how well the model does in particular tasks is, again, a sort of a separate inference. Uh, the observation has been uh, the data fit seems to be highly predictive of, of task performance. So sort of the better the model is at fitting really large data sets, the better it tends to do in terms of performance on various tasks. That said, uh, there is sort of a, some gap there to fill. Uh, that ends up being filled in a application specific way in terms of like how the scaling law uh, performance prediction ends up tying to how well the model might do on a particular task. And uh, I think you're correct in saying, you know, we partially, uh, part of our argument allows to partially like close the full loop on some of the particular tasks, most, I think, obviously arithmetic. Uh, but maybe not on some others. So that leaves some work to do. Maybe keeps my students still excited on some actual of this work on uh, fleshing out uh, the full chain for other kinds of tests and, and what maybe the right conceptual framings of the model is. But hopefully, again, and the big takeaways being uh, one I like is the ability of very simple models to elucidate aspects of sort of large scale model behavior, uh, but maybe more precisely, the importance of the specific choice of measure and how it can affect inferences on what we think models are doing. The choice of metric is not a sort of free choice. Like it, it affects everything else uh, that you're doing and it affects the way that, the way that you're sort of, uh, the inference that you make about the outcome of the models. You draw correlations between linear uh, metrics like uh, token error rate and some of the nonlinear or discontinuous metrics that researchers use. How should a researcher think about metric choice in light of the results of this paper? Any claims being made should be uh, sort of correctly made in context of the metric choice. So like acknowledge the, the sort of effect metric choice might have on any kind of large claims being made. Uh, I think that's meaningful to do and sometimes hard to do because I think announcements and discussions are often made context-free uh, and the context matters in, in that, you know, for instance, if the, the claim was, you mm -hmm. know, we, we see emergence, but you know, for claims that give partial credit, we expect to see sharper behavior in metrics. That it's longer, but I think it's more correct. Sure. And, uh, you know, allows again for the listener or the reader to sort of correctly interpret the strength of, of what is being observed. So it ties to a question of fundamentalness, maybe. Uh, like, you know, if, and I don't know the full answer to this question, because uh, I, I mostly studied this question from the perspective of. Sort of mm -hmm. pick the metric for the thing that you care about in the real world and then sort of adjust the rest of your stack accordingly. 
Uh, and we're in settings where these mm -hmm. metrics are not necessarily optimized for it. They're just sort of more post-evaluated. Uh, and then inferences are made about behavior of the world based on them. Mm -hmm. um, I think here, again, the main take, or at least the obvious takeaway is just care in interpretation uh, from sort of these choice metrics. Uh, the fundamentalness question is an interesting one. So, you know, if I can always, uh, there's a hypothesis here, which I, I, I don't have, uh, I'll state as a hypothesis because I don't think we have complete evidence for, but the hypothesis is that uh, I can, I can always find a metric that will uh, sort of turn what seems like an emergent property to a non-emergent one. Uh, let's suppose that is true. I don't know if this is true or not. But suppose that this is true, I mean, how should one interpret emergentness, if you like? So you know, does that mean emergence is fundamental right. or not? It, it uh, would impl imply that emergence is a very fuzzy and metric-specific label as opposed to something fundamental. I think everything is measurement-specific and, <laughs> and, and like we try too hard, uh, I think, un, uh, incorrectly often to sort of overgeneralize statements and claims. And like most things are dependent on what you, how you choose okay. to measure them and sort of the inference, the, the sub aspect of the property that you're trying to pull out. So, uh, you know, should we worry exactly how much do we care about emergentness? I think some camps do, uh, I guess the field now has camps, but anyways, <laughs> some camps do quite a bit for various reasons. If we do, then, you know, then do we care about how fundamental they may or may not be? Uh, I think that's a question the field has to figure out. And, you know, some of my, our current research is trying to understand better. Again, like I said earlier, the sort of full chain thing, all the way from, uh, specific tasks, overall model behavior, uh, to like what things may be fundamental or not. Um, another thing, a, a easier claim to make is for any problem, I can probably find a metric that will give me something that looks like emergence. So this is the opposite direction. This is. This is not saying I can always find a non-emergent metric, but I, I can, the opposite claim I can make more easily because again, we have an example in the paper and I sort of, I feel reasonably confident I can do this for any metric that ever gets better. I can find a way to reconstruct it in such a way that it will get better in a way that looks sharp and sort of, you know, unpredictable uh, to a lay eye. And so, again, I think it's, it forces some reconsideration of claims made without context. I, at least, at the very least, we hope that this is what this work is doing. Uh, and forces again consideration of the metric that you choose and what how what inference I'm repeating somewhat, but uh, at least for the you know the folks building models and, and explaining them to the general public, the way the general public ingests these things, the way policy is made around these things, uh, context freeness is can be worrying, almost dangerous. You want to be careful about like adding context appropriately because all of this, for better or worse, it it all matters and and can't be removed from. Uh, how we think about what models are doing. Uh, let's shift gears. Uh, and unfortunately, I don't think we'll be able to do the second paper justice due to time. But uh, again, uh, your uh, Decoding Trust, a comprehensive assessment of trustworthiness in GPT models was another award winner in the benchmark category. Uh, unpack that paper and what it, uh, what it has attempted to do. So this was work uh, with lots of awesome people. Uh, the lead author is Boshin Wang at Illinois, uh, the sort of lead senior person, if you like, 
or at least their advisor is Bo Lee, uh, who's now at UChicago. Uh, but this brought together folks from a bunch of different places. Uh, me and some of my students out of Stanford, a few Illinois people, some Berkeley people, some Microsoft research people. Um, and our goal was to, yeah, this is a, this big sort of consortium. Um, but our goal was to try to take some first steps in uh, trying to ground a little bit what uh, trustworthiness might mean in the language model world and uh, think a bit about how we might build evaluations for aspects of trustworthiness uh, that we might found, might, we might think are important. Um, and so we landed on uh, eight perspectives. Um, so these included uh, toxicity, stereotype bias, uh, robustness of different kinds. So I have a robustness, I have distribution robustness, uh, privacy, ethics, and fairness. And for each of these, we came up with uh, some evaluation. So some way to query models. These were all, all of these were designed to be query style. Uh, so some way to query models uh, and get a response and then evaluate this and to give us some signal about how uh, how well the model might be doing with respect to various uh, trustworthiness measures. Um, so we applied these to a bunch of different models. So, I mean, the main task was designing this evaluation and uh, figuring out how to make sure things are scalable. For some of the directions, uh, we had to come up with some new metrics. For some others, we extended existing metrics uh, to sort of be a bit more flexible and capture, have better coverage of various aspects of, of model behavior. Uh, and then uh, in the end, we have this toolbox that has a GitHub page, uh, also on Hugging Face, so people can sort of easily sort of download and run the evaluation. And it's something that we're hoping and looking to build up quite a bit, actually, as uh, hopefully in the long term, have a big suite of uh, evaluations for model behavior that uh, build on existing, I think, excellent work by some of our colleagues on evaluation for performance. So as you know, there's a bunch of work on uh, performance evaluations. I think very notably, for instance, my colleague, Percy Liang and uh, colleagues have Helm out of Stanford, which is sort of widely uh, used for people thinking about evaluating performance of language models. But we noticed the gap that uh, we, the group that was important in directions that are related to trustworthiness uh, that we wanted to try to help fill. Could you characterize the contributions of this particular work as uh, primarily pulling everything under one umbrella or uh, advancing the particular approach to measuring to measurements around specific concerns or you know filling in gaps where there were no accepted measurements or is it kind of all of the above in different places it's it's kind of all of the above depending <laughs> on the case. so uh, in some ways it's there's good and bad to it. I mean, as a academic paper, it was a bit, it was extremely unusual uh, because the, at least the initial draft was almost a hundred pages uh, because we had to cover so much. Uh, as you said, like, again, we had this mix of uh, pulling things that already existed, but some new design, some uh, sort of cases where we're just extending existing perspectives. I think some of the robustness things look like that. Uh, cases where there wasn't uh, uh, definition out there and we were, were using it. Uh, or we defined one uh, or, and defined some tests uh, that could evaluate some direction. So it was all of the above. It was a bit of a, 
it was a lot to read. I think the final nearest version has sort of a, we have a eight page summary and then uh, like 80 pages of appendix. <laughs> so, so it covers quite a bit. Um, again, just to, just to laying, to be able to lay this whole thing out, there's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then beyond that, having a software package that again, people can download and use, um, to actually evaluate models that you're, they are building, uh, I think is an important contribution of, of this kind of work. So both the hopefully intellectual work of pulling all these together uh, and also the sort of hopefully practical, useful, uh, aspects of having a toolbox that, uh, can be built on and deployed by, by folks. Um, I think some of the interesting observations, uh, we focused a little bit in original writing on GPT models. Um, so 3.5 and 4, uh, at the time we evaluated the most. Um, mostly the observations were positive in the sense that models do seem to be getting better. Um, mm-hmm. Meaning there, was, there were meaningful improvements in many of the evaluations that we did from 3.5 to 4 uh, in uh, almost all the directions. One interesting one, and I think this points to a fascinating tension in trying to build general purpose models that follow human behavior, is that some of the perspectives uh, relied on the model not following instruction when the instruction was thought to be potentially harmful. So mm-hmm. you can imagine, for instance, ethical settings where uh, you'd want the model, like the, the right answer is, um, if, if you try to prompt the model to do to say something or implement something unethical or give you a particular response that's unethical, the right answer, at least in our collective reasoning about what we want for the models, is that they don't do this. Uh, mm-hmm. But if the model is good at following instructions, it does what you ask it to do. Uh, and this leads to a weird conflict. And mm-hmm. that uh, in particular, we found some of the directions that we covered, GPT-4 looked worse, but we think it looked worse less because the model is uh, necessarily sort of you know, less tuned, but looks worse because it follows your instructions a little bit better. So hmm. um, it's an interesting conundrum. It's a, not exactly clear exactly how, I think there's some space for societal and also folks building these tools on how we interpret and sort of evaluate uh, what cases we want instruction following to be exactly what the model does and what cases we want. Uh, we have an ethical standard we want to hold such that or some other standard we want to hold such that we think the model not following your instruction is a good thing. Yeah. So this shows up in fairness to some extent as well, you know, in settings where the model can have biased decision-making, you know, the societal standard we believe, and what we're building to is that the model should not. And so we want to check that isn't doing that, but you know, will the model, if you for, try to ask it hard enough, actually do that and, and, you know, maybe look worse in our evaluation. What's interesting there is that your observations are a bit of the opposite of what I've tended to hear is that many in the community feel like, uh, to some degree, RLHF and, uh, and, um, to some degree instruction tuning of like, hampered gpt 4s ability so that it it you know it clearly performs better but it's what it's a lot more limited in uh what it will respond to and and you need to coerce it in ways that uh make it more difficult to use at times 
Um, so I, I would agree with that characterization. I'll say two things that maybe are interesting. Uh, both maybe, I don't know, uh, general statements, but I think meaning, ho hopefully meaningful. Uh, one of them is I think this particular conversation points to, to a challenge in scientific evaluation of black box models and that behind the scenes, the models are changing all the time. Uh, right. So the version we evaluated was a little bit earlier in the stack than I think some of what people have been complaining about recently. Got it. Uh, I don't think we have any particular behind the scenes versioning, so we don't actually know. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we know when we evaluated and it's in the paper, uh, sort of the timeline that we did the work. Uh, but to your point, uh, the way the ecosystem has developed is such that there's no public information about which model you're talking to. Uh, and sort of all the changes and tuning are happening behind the scenes. And so it, it challenges the science a little bit and sort of the, the strength of a claim like the one I just made. But I, you know, I can say that for at the time we evaluated, uh, this was true. I'd also say that um, despite maybe this comment that you're making, I think it's also it's still true, I think, at least in my this is anecdotal, maybe, but maybe still true, that uh, four is still better than 3.5 at mm -hmm. following instructions, even if it, it's worse at following instructions than four from six months ago, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the, the sort of, at least the inferential claim from the paper of uh, instruction following being better in as models advance, I think is still true, even though within the same model family, I think, I, I've heard the same observations from people. Yeah. That, uh, the effect of the tuning has been that it follows instructions less in some cases where you would have imagined it followed more. Yes. Yeah. I don't know if you know James O there at Stanford, but he did some work looking at the effect of uh, or GPT performance over time. And uh, I recall one of the questions that I asked him is, you know, if he envisions establishing like some kind of GPT weather report that just like, is static is or that static dynamic you know, consistently applying some metric and reporting performance uh and you know i put the same question to you you've got a toolbox you know can you host this somewhere and just have it running against current gpt and seeing how it changes yeah no this is this is a fascinating question uh, maybe i'll could it be done probably i think uh if we did this it'd be interesting at least from the trustworthiness perspectives again our our toolbox and our evaluation is very like, coupled to those perspectives as opposed to the standard ones one interesting wrinkle i might throw back is my guess is that they're doing a b test behind the scenes all the time and they're not giving everybody the same model um and i don't know this for sure this is a speculation but i guess you know it's not clear how strong the inference might be from our particular instance of the model, because I guess it's it's very possible we're just seeing something different uh, than some other subpopulation. It'd still be interesting uh, to at least track, even if it's in this you know maybe not fully generalizable way, but track uh, what's happening across metrics. That sounds like a sampling problem. Perhaps, yeah, yeah, you, you could do it with more population, and hopefully, you get all sides of things. Sure, sure, indeed. Um, yeah, if, 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 uh, someone had some compute cycles and was very interested in doing this, I don't know that we will do it, but it's interesting. <laughs> what scale of, uh, 
resources are required to run the full benchmark? I mean, it's definitely much, much less than either model inference or um, sort of training for sure. Um, it's mostly... How can it be less than model inference? Isn't it model inference? Inference from the sense that uh, for many of these models, the inference is external. Um, so like GPT, for instance, we're not hosting a GPT instance. We're querying a model externally. So you're not paying, you're paying well, open AI uh, to, to get tokens back. So someone is bearing the cost for sure, just maybe not the person running the evaluation. To what degree do you feel like the tasks and or metrics in this benchmark are easily applicable to real world problems? Like, have you replicated the problem that you're trying to solve <laughs> in other aspects of your research? <laughs> no, this is, this is a good question. And it's great to be self-reflective <laughs> in this way. And, and um, maybe, you know, the practical implication of that is, you know, if I'm solving a real problem, should I be relying on a benchmark like this or should I be investing in creating my own benchmarks, which uniquely represent the, the issues and the problem I'm trying to solve? Maybe I'll, I'll reframe your question slightly uh, because a version of this question that I've been thinking about a lot recently is uh, sort of what level of general purposeness is the right level of abstraction to be thinking about evaluation for models? So a lot of the evaluation stack thinks about models mostly user-facing in a the user can ask anything uh, and thinks about what we might evaluate. So there's, there's a coverage problem maybe, but it's also like a tricky one because there's lots of flexibility in, in the potential interaction. Uh, and I'd argue perhaps that both a lot of the existing work, but also even this decoding trust work is targeted at that general use case in that way. And so to the extent you know, ignoring coverage for a second, because I think that's a meaningful caveat. Uh, I'd argue that you know, all the instances of tests that we come up with are sort of uh, interactions that uh, either there's evidence for, or like you know, simple thought experiments. Like it, it's it's not a stretch to have people uh, interact with the model for various kinds of say decision making settings or querying for some outcome where we want to be careful about bias in various ways or security leakage, for instance, like, you know, will it replicate, will it spit out PII information if it's given in context of its part of training data? That's one of the tests that we run. So uh, for in these directions, I, I would argue that uh, our tests are relevant for real world use. Uh, but I, I think there's a meaningful coverage problem that is just going to be one that the field will we'll have to take Either we'll come up with some, you know, new innovative method or we'll have to go with the sort of uh, just increasing the number and size of tests that we run to get better and better coverage. That's one direction. The other direction, because I've been talking quite a bit to uh, various domains, uh, so most in importantly and recently to folks in healthcare who are either thinking of deploying or already deploying language models, uh, either clinician facing or sometimes patient facing. Uh, so clinician decision support or triage sometimes or patient facing to maybe do some early screening. Um, so for better or worse, these things are here and there's a lot of interest in, in potentially using them. And there's a question of, you know, how can we tell whether we think these models are sort of ready for prime time in these settings? And there, I think where we're landing on is uh, similarly for education, uh, by the way. 
And there, I think where we're landing on is that the, the domain seems to matter quite a bit. And like the domain, uh, the specific concerns that the domain has may or not, may not be covered by the general purpose evaluations. For something like healthcare, I think something very specific, uh, actually both healthcare and education, the notion of harm, uh, I think often actually has much clearer resolution. I think harm can be vaguer in the general purpose sense. Uh, in healthcare, if I have a recommendation for a treatment and I have uh, sort of uh, known drug interactions that are fatal or uh, I have someone I'm recommending something to and the actual recommendation will kill the person, like the harm there is just very clear and obvious. Uh, and uh, I think that that clarifies, at least at some level, clarifies gaps and suggests some evaluation mechanisms that you may not be thinking about as clearly if you're thinking about general purpose use, because you'd, you'd imagine people are not using it for medical decision-making settings. Uh, similar in education, again, uh, where education is an interesting one, particularly if it's K-12, because uh, so specific rules and societal uh, norms about uh, what we want to expose, like the interactions children should be having with technology. Or even if it's a teacher, but the teacher is showing their results to a class, like well, what's acceptable, not acceptable. And sometimes this varies, uh, at the very least, varies sort of by states based on their regulations, often by school, sometimes by individual uh, in terms of what is where they want to be. And so thinking about uh, exactly how to build evaluations that can capture all these, I think has been tricky. Where I hope we will go, and I think some of what we're building and working towards is uh, I'm optimistic of a path where we can get good at uh, sort of having a very large suite of possible evaluation tests uh, and then be able to pull which subsets of these are relevant for a particular context. A context might be, again, uh, particular domains. Uh, I mean, I say these as healthcare. Healthcare itself is huge, right? There's uh, specific specialties. They all have specific interests, so cardiology and radiology care about often different things. And in fact, I mean, as an aside, often issues with healthcare often come from the fact that they're competing interests for uh, the different specialties and what, what they think is most important in your care. Right? And so, I mean, that's an aside, not there, but, but it's, at least for this conversation, but it, it brings up maybe challenging questions on how we might think about evaluation and at what level of abstraction uh, or what level of use, if you like. So uh, general domains, specialties, individual hospitals, individual doctors or clinicians. Um, uh, purchase on this problem, I'm optimistic of the route of we can build enough, a large enough suite of tests that we could sort of, the work becomes what to pull for a uh, specific context. I think there's some interesting work in maybe personalized, personalization said broadly, but like, specialization, if you like, of tests. So are there ways to semi-automatically figure out what subsets of a large suite of tests are most relevant uh, to a particular individual? Maybe tied to their values is something with some other colleagues have been playing around a little bit and understanding a little bit better how people's values affect how they interface with technology. And so maybe there's some space to be able to capture some of that and how we think about tests at different levels of abstraction. So, so maybe, you know, I, I went off on a slight tangent, but hopefully I think 
capture some of the spirit of your question. So it's a hard one. Uh, and as a nominal general statement, yes, I think we're building tests that we think are relevant for practice. As a specific statement, I think there's still some gap in what practice means and different resolutions of what that might mean and how we can build tests that uh, evaluation suites that uh, I guess I'm hopeful for the route of being able to do this in a in a way that can be extendable and scalable. Granted that this these are uh, black box evaluations, I'm curious, do you see any issue extending them across architectures? And I have a specific point in mind, and that is uh, a kind of bare LLM versus a retrieval augmented uh, scenario. Would you apply the same metrics approach equally? Yeah. So uh, a quick aside, I think one of the interesting tangents that we've been also considering uh, is uh, like you like you've alluded to. We say LLMs like uh, I guess a model, but really they're mostly systems. They often have stuff around them. I think as you, as you're talking about, mm -hmm. you know, retrieval augmented generation is now common. Uh, tool use of various kinds is common. Um, there's another mm -hmm. thing that I was going to say. Systems. Guardrails, exactly. Yes. So stuff around are common, mm -hmm. and and these change qualitatively the behavior of models. Uh, for the for these tests, so, so the mm -hmm. tangent I was going to go on is, I think there's also space to think about how to evaluate all of these tools separately, uh, which I think could be interesting, because mm -hmm. it allows for maybe. Some interesting, I could imagine the use case of being able to mix and match, for instance. So in a black box setting or assuming you had access to the tools independently. Could I do, for instance, good evaluation of a rag tool uh, without uh, in a black box way? Sort of, kind of. Um, there, maybe not black box, but there are like existing evaluations of embedding, for instance, embedding quality that will should correlate with how the rag tool ends up uh, working in practice. Uh, probably full system tells you something that you may not get because you know system interactions can sometimes defy uh, individual evaluations. But I find that whole direction fascinating, as, I guess, as an aside. Uh, I would say, at least for decoding trust and similar evaluations, they're all purely prompt. So in some sense, they only care about input and output from the point of view of the test. Uh, so like they're testing the system, whatever the system is. Uh, I think they, you know, because of this, th there's some, uh, we were talking about, or I was alluding to coverage earlier. There are probably some coverage gaps because uh, there are some parts of evaluation that are tricky to do without transparency. I think there's some meaningful gaps in understanding, for instance, training data, uh, because we know that it affects uh, models in particular ways. There's a line of work that some of my other students are playing with. I, I also very interesting on thinking about data contamination. So this is a big issue in evaluations and tests, as you might know, uh, uh, because uh, two things. One, many of the tests have data sources that are effectively online because they're open tests, sort of by design, so people can use them. But uh, again, this is not a, a, a statement or an accusation, but it's just an observation. If I'm building a model, the obvious thing for me to do is to train my model on the test because I'll look really good with respect to that test data. 
Uh, and so the incentives are sort of set up in that way. I'm not, again, I have no evidence that anyone is doing anything. I'm just observing that like this is a problem. Um, and so there's a gap there in thinking about how we might, uh, one, you know, to what extent can one build this tied to the general comment about black box evaluations and their gaps. And in particular, this training data gap is one that uh, is salient for me. There's also, I think, meaningful gaps in uh, being able to examine weights and sort of say meaningful things about them. Uh, but separately, um, I, I guess if one is willing to do black box, then uh, at least these kinds of tools that we're building, I think, uh, can say, can sort of capture system behavior, again, caveated with this is black box and uh, we don't know exactly how things are trained and these other reasonable caveats uh, on what's going on. Well, Sammy, thanks so much for taking the time to dig into these papers uh, with us. Congrats yeah, on the- Yeah, it was a pleasure. Great questions. Paper thanks awards. for prompting. Um, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And kudos to all my collaborators, colleagues, students. Uh, almost always, I get some maybe undeserved credit. I think the <laughs> folks doing most of the work, the students that really push these things forward, and they're incredible. I enjoy working. That's fantastic. Awesome. Thanks so much, Emmy.